Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is April the 12th, and our chapter reading for today is 1 Kings chapter 18. What a monumental chapter, chapter 18 of 1 Kings really is. It is what most people associate with the life and ministry of Elijah the Tishbite, Eliyah. Eli, the first part of Elijah's name, means my God. Yah is the personal name of the covenant God of Israel. It is usually referred to as Yahweh in English. We know it is the name that no one knows how to pronounce. The Hebrew name for God is just four consonants, Y-H-V or Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Now, no one knows how to pronounce it because in order to not use the name of the Lord their God in vain, the Jews just simply did not pronounce it. And since there are no vowels in Hebrew, the pronunciation was lost. It was only the high priest that spoke the personal name of God that was handed down, the dialectos, the dialect of how it was said, and the vowels that were used were passed from one high priest down to another. And so over the years, the name was just simply not used. And so today, the Jews refer to this YHVH that no one knows how to pronounce, the God who has no pronunciation to his name, as Hashem. Shem, S-H-E-M, the name of Noah's oldest son, is the name Name. That's what Shem means. It means name. Put the definite article Ha in front of it, the, and it means Hashem, the name. And so you will often hear Orthodox Jews talking about Hashem, Hashem, Hashem. Well, that's not that they don't know how to understand who God is. They just have such a reverence for his name that they say the name. They don't want to pronounce it because they're afraid if they pronounce it wrongly, they'll be flippantly or wrongly or inaccurately pronouncing the name of God, and they believe that that is deadly to do so. Now, we don't care to say everything. We use the name of Jesus very flippantly. We talk about God in a very irreverent way. So we have the other side of the spectrum, whereas the Jews may go to extremes on one side, whether they do or not, I'll leave that up for you to decide when they talk about Hashem. But we go to the extreme on the other side by just talking about God flippantly, which, by the way, God doesn't like and commanded us not to do that. We know the pronunciation is not Jehovah, Yahuwah, because the way that Yahuwah came about, Jehovah, is taking the vowels of the word Lord, Adonai, and putting those under the consonants, Yahuwah, that Y-H-V-H, and that's how we get the name Jehovah. We know that's incorrect, 
And so the cult that is called the Jehovah's Witnesses, they even have the name wrong. Not only is their doctrine wrong and their teaching wrong, but the name that they use is derived in a way that is inconsistent with Scripture as to what is the name of the God of the Bible. The word Adonai is sometimes used to translate the personal name of God. Adonai is the word for Mr., Lord. It would be comparable to the Spanish Señor, which refers to God, sometimes refers to Sir or Mr., when not related to a supernatural being. And so I'm saying all of that to say Elijah's name, as we say, Elijah Eliyah means Yahweh or Yah is my God. And so that is what Elijah means. So his very name was descriptive of his task and his calling. Because you know the story, it had not rained for over three years. And Elijah, just as he appeared as a meteor in the night in chapter 17, he was away, he was in hiding, he was being blessed of God, fed of God by the brook Kareth, by ravens, fed by a widow, by a cruise of oil that did not ever dry up. And we looked at the raising of the widow's son yesterday. All of that was happening in the three-year period. And then Elijah just shows up as Obadiah, Ovadiah, and Ahab had gone their separate ways looking for water because everything, every spring had dried up. Everything was dry. Now they were looking for water and Ovadiah, Obadiah came upon Elijah and it scared him to death because Elijah said, I want you to go tell your master that you work for that Elijah's back in town. And so when, when he said that, he said, what have I done to you? What is it? I mean, are you trying to get me killed? I mean, how have I sinned against you? How have I harmed you and hurt you that you're asking me to go tell King Ahab that you're back in town because as soon as I leave, you know, you're noted for just being whisked away and following God and God might whisk you away. And here I said, I have seen Elijah and you don't show up. That's just signing my death warrant. And so Elijah said, you go tell the king, I'm still here. So anyway, he did. And uh, it's amazing because uh, Obadiah was so afraid. He said, look, have you not heard that I, what all I did? I, I saved all of these prophets when Jezebel was going to kill them. I hid them in caves and then I, I fed them with bread and water so they could live. Has no one told you what I've done? I've been faithful. Now you're asking me to do this and it's just going to be, it's going to be certain death for me. Well, anyway, he went and got Ahab and as soon as, <laughs> as Ahab saw him, he said, there you troubler of Israel. Well, Elijah retorted back, no, you're the one in your family that's brought all of this chaos upon Israel. And he said, I want, I want you to do. He said, I have not troubled Israel. This is first Kings 18, 18, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of there's the personal name of God, all capitals, Hashem. 
and have followed the Baal. Baal. We call it Baal. Baal is the word for Lord, and it has the idea of masters. And so there were many Baals, the Baalim. There were several because they all had to do with a different aspect of either fertility or of some something having to do with agriculture. There were a host of Baals, or Baalim as it would be in Hebrew. Now, therefore, sin and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. Now, caramel is the word for the vineyard of God. That's what caramel or carmel means. Carom is the word for garden as in vineyard. El is the short name for Elohim or the name of God. So, It is the garden of God, the vineyard of God. And if you go to Mount Carmel today, you're going to go and see where a monastery is. That's right. It is a monastery that's there today. They're called the Carmelite Order, of course, because of Caramel, the place where this great confrontation took place. And often I'm asked when I am leading groups and teaching in Israel, how do you know what is a real site and what do you know is a guest site? And it's usually here at Mount Carmel that I share with people kind of what would be a gradation of sites, a grade A site, a grade A plus. There's not many of those in Israel, but there's some that X marks the spot. This is where it happened. We know that beyond any doubt. And there are several of those pertaining to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of the prophets of Jesus, of the apostles. We know some places where for sure this is where it happened. X marks the spot. And then that's called a grade A or grade A plus. But then there's the A minus, B plus sites where we don't know where X marks the spot, but we know that it was in this area, general area, because of the parameters, the archaeological or biblical parameters that are there. And people often, because it's early in the trip, they usually we are at Mount Carmel on the first or second day of touring because we usually start on the coast and work our way to the Galilee and then make our aliyah up to Jerusalem. And so it is usually here or somewhere in this area that we talk about a grade A site or a grade B site. I usually start that at Caesarea by the sea because it is a grade a plus site. We know where things happen there. And so this is a good B plus site. You say, well, how do you know this is where it happened? Well, this is how we determine these things biblically and archaeologically. First of all, it is where the Carmelite monastery is, is called Mukraka. Now that is the Arabic word for the place of the burning. So that means it was a place of sacrifice from antiquity. So that gives you a clue. It was a sacred site, so it's called Mukraka in Arabic. It was the place of the burning. Secondly, it is called the Horns of Carmel is where that is. That means it's the highest place. You can go across the Jezreel Valley up to the mountains of the lower Galilee. For instance, many have gone to Nazareth and gone to a place called the Precipice. Regardless of whether that was the place of the Precipice where they wanted to throw Jesus off, I don't believe it is, but it's a great lookout. And from there on a clear day, you can see the Carmel mountain range. And Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel is not 
just one mountain. It is a mountain range, the Carmel Range. And what it is from a geographical standpoint, it is the finger mountain that juts out to the sea from the Samaritan Mountains, Mount Gilboa, begins the northernmost abutment where the mountains end that are called the mountains of Samaria. Now, the mountains of Samaria are called the mountains of Samaria because they are mostly in what would have been in New Testament times, Samaria. And then, after you go farther south, they are the Judean mountains, and they end at Beersheba in the south. But that mountain range in the north ends at the place where Mount Gilboa is and where the mountain pass of Arun is. It's called the Arun Pass. That's where Megiddo is. And then there is another pass at Yagnium, which is at the base of Mount Carmel. But Mount Carmel is the finger mountain of the Samaritan Mountains that runs out to the sea all the way to Haifa, the port city, the modern port city of Haifa, and uh, the gulf that ends, uh, curves around and ends at Akko or Acre as it was in ancient times. Ptolemy, it was called during the Greek period. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because geography is important in the Bible. And the horns of something, the Karen, my wife's name is Karen, which is the word for summit, the highest point, and, and of course that she is, is the highest point in my life other than the Lord Jesus, as she is the Karen, the summit, the highest elevation, and that is where that is. Now, that's where always the high place, the altar, would have been at the highest point, at the summit of a mountain range or a mountain. So that's another reason, not only Mukraka, the place of the burning, but also it is the horns of Carmel, the highest point. Now, also, it is the only place in the Carmel Range where you can go directly down to the Kishon River. Now, the Kishon River, the Kishon Brook, is where the prophets were killed after this great battle. Also, it's where the water would have been plentiful in that area. And so, there are a number of reasons. I'm running out of time, but this is, gives you two or three reasons why. I label this a B-plus, A-minus site, because it was not X marked the spot. We haven't found the altar or anything like that. But we know because of the biblical parameters that are given and historical parameters, geographical parameters, in all of the Bible for a high place that this would have been the area where it would have been. So therefore, that's why the ancient Carmelites built their monastery there to commemorate this event. It is important where it is because that is the place where all of Israel gathered and everyone knew where it was. And there had been an altar of the Lord there before. So it was a sacred high place because the Bible says that Elijah challenged the people to come. And you know the famous statement, how long will you halt between two opinions? How long are you going to pause here? How long are you going to stutter and stammer? Either God is God or Baal is God. And if Baal is God, then let's put everything we have into serving him. But if God, if Hashem, if Yahweh, if Yah is God, and he is my God, then we need to serve him. 
And so this was a great, bold confrontation, one like we need in our culture today, someone with some guts, intestinal fortitude, courage. And if there's anything we're lacking in modern pulpits, it's courage. I've never seen so many lily-livered, wet noodle-back pastors in my life. They're afraid of their shadow. I just want to go up to some of them and shake hands with them, then wash my hands and go boo, because they're scared of their own shadow. They're afraid of their career because it's not a calling to them, it's a career, the pastoral ministry. The prophetic ministry and edge is gone. They want to be liked by everybody, disregarding the words of Jesus, who said, beware when all men speak well of you. And Elijah said, look, if God be God, let's get on with it. Courage, courage. We are lacking courage, and it may be the commodity in the pulpit that we're lacking the most. But in following the storyline, Elijah said, I'm going to rebuild the altar, and he gave the prophets of Baal all kinds of time. They did all of their shenanigans. They cut themselves. They wailed. They bled themselves. They did everything they could, and of course, there was no fire that came down from heaven because Elijah said, hey, let's do something that can't be manipulated. You make the altar, you get the sacrifice, but the God who is truly God can answer fire from heaven. Not only that, but Elijah rebuilt the altar. That means there was once an altar there to Yah, to Hashem. He rebuilt the altar. And then he said, look, the God that I serve can start wet wood. And so you go get your water and you pour on this because I want you to understand this is going to be a supernatural ignition from heaven. And the God that I serve can start a fire with wet wood because it's supernatural. And so you go get your water, pour on top of it. Since this God can't start a fire anywhere, he must be off visiting somewhere. Uh, and Elijah got very sarcastic, by the way, very sarcastic. He said, maybe he's relieving himself. It's time to go to the bathroom. Maybe he's, he's off on a visit. Maybe he's deaf. He can't hear. Yell a little louder. Oh, he was taunting them. And then what he did is he said, oh, God, I want you to show who you are, that I'm your servant, and that indeed you're the God. And fire fell from heaven, consumed everything, consumed everything. And Elijah said, this is the God that we need to serve, the one that answered from heaven who is a supernatural God who is transcendent. He is not some false, fake idol somewhere. He is the true and the living God. He is Eliah. He is my God. And you know the story. And we'll look at it next chapter, next podcast, chapter 19, about the story of the rain and then Elijah's great courage evaporating in light of Jezebel's comments. It's amazing. We'll deal with that. What happens and when are we vulnerable after a great victory? All of that is still to come. But the operative word for chapter 18 is courage. We need it. We need it in the pulpit. We need it in our homes. We need it among the people of God. For On the Way, this is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCRISP.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.